Welcome to World Oil's Oil Field Electrification Technology Podcast, sponsored by Joliet Electric Motors, powering today's oil field for tomorrow's energy. Here we are, folks. Welcome back. I'm here with my partner in crime, Shane. Shane, and I'm here with Jim. And yeah, again, exactly. And again, this, this is sponsored by Joliet Electric Motors, and we're sitting once again at the Blend Bar. Yeah, exactly. And Joliet, man, you guys have had a banner year this year, haven't you? We're doing all right. We're doing okay. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Wait, wait. What do you mean, man? I know you guys have been selling those electric motors, all, well, this, all this oil field electrification stuff. I mean, that certainly doesn't hurt the cause. That's for sure. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Thank you very much for sponsoring, and thank the Blend Bar, too, for letting us use the beautiful boardroom. If you guys are ever in the Blend Bar at the Woodlands, you know, stop by, check out their lunch, because it's more than just cigars and whiskey here, for sure. But ask them to take a peek at the boardroom, and you will be envious of where we are recording this. very festive right now. Absolutely. Decorated for Christmas. I love it. I love it. Just need a fireplace. And so today we have a very interesting guest, right, Shane? That's, you know, Jim, that's putting that very lightly. Our guest here today is, I've gotten to know him and watched him work his magic in a few presentations, and he's a very knowledgeable guy and really excited to have him on this podcast. All right, well, let's bring him in. This is Brent Mullenix from Eco Hydro Flow. Brent, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. So tell us, before we get into stuff, tell us a little bit about Eco Hydro Flow. And I see that's a subsidiary of Eco Integrated Technologies, right? Yes. Yes. Eco Integrated Technologies is kind of what we call the mothership of the system. And we're a very green technology, but in a realistic type application. So we focus on green applications in water, waste, and actually waste to energy type technologies. That's interesting. So what's your angle in the oil field then? Because you guys deal with a lot of different industries, but for the oil field, you guys have a very interesting application. Yeah, Yeah, separate application is we look at wastewater and how we can actually bring produced water or frack water into the environment in a very eco-friendly way and do that from a position that the cost doesn't outweigh the technology. Yeah, well, this is always the issue. I mean, we talk about this all the time, don't we, Shane? I mean, you can't, you know, ESG, all of that stuff is great, but, you know, it's got to pay for itself, right? Nobody nobody wants to fork out more money to have a green solution. And so, yeah, that's interesting. So tell us more then about the technology. So you're taking produced water and you do what with it? Well, we look at taking the produced water and you figure out a way how can, you know, the biggest problem with produced water is the salt. You know, mm-hmm. that's the holy grail of everything. So we can clean it. We can actually give you pharmaceutical grade or salt water. Everybody can do that. But the problem is when you're through with it, you still got to dispose of it. You still got to get rid of it. You have right. to haul it. You have to transport it. You got to figure something out. And what we're trying to do is figure out a way is how can we take these salts out, which is the biggest problem, and it's a large volume of the system, and still create an eco-friendly product at the tail end of the system where at the end, the operator and the guy that's transporting this can still do this in a cost-effective way. Hey, everybody, let me jump in here for a second just to thank our generous sponsors, Joliet Electric Motors. Without their support, this podcast wouldn't even be possible. So for all of your oil-filled electric motor needs, whether that's new motors, refurbs, field work, whatever you need, be sure and give Joliet a call. Remember, that's Joliet Electric Motors. Powering today's energy and transition for tomorrow's energy needs. Let's get back to the show. 
Right. And because that is the thing. And when you talk about a cost-effective way, you're talking about dealing with the salt or the solids that you're bringing out of the water as well, right? Because everybody's happy to reuse water for frack or some other thing. But those solids are always the big bugaboo. I mean, that's always... That's always been the difficult thing because there's a lot of salt, right? You threw a number. I was just like, yeah, what? Yeah. That's well, crazy. A couple <laughs> things to look at. I mean, uh, produced water is 10 times usually saltier than the ocean. That's why RO and membranes just didn't work. We just blow those things up. The other thing is you look at the weight of it or what are we looking at is how much salt or solids are in this. And you're talking anywhere from a quarter to a half a pound of solids per gallon of water. That Not we, per barrel, per gallon. That's correct, per gallon. Wow. So when you start to you know ramp this up and you're looking at hopefully to you know evaporate or process or whether you're doing you know thousands of barrels of water on a daily basis, you're talking of forty to eighty thousand pounds of salt that you're going to have to process and figure out. Okay, now did I create a negative event? You know, yeah. Now I've got water, but now do I have a worse hazardous problem? Then I started with. Now I've got all this salt. <laughs> right, things, exactly. You know, so we don't want to create another negative event. So the process is, okay, what can we do with these salts? Is there a binding? Is there polymers that we can mix with salts to do concrete, to do, you know, ply boards and other things that we can do with salts to make a green, profitable product at the tail end to clean up? Then some of these salts would have, you know, we've talked about lithium extraction and other minerals that we can actually extract out of these salts. And then you can always use salts as road base in the wintertime for, you know, what we call the northern areas. But the bottom line is to figure out a way that we can bring this produced water into a dischargeable, ag, potable, maybe even usable water in the end, and then take the negative things of the salts and the negative environmental impact that we have on the solids and then find out a way to make that a green end product. Right, exactly. Well, I'll tell you, that is an important problem to solve when it comes to produced water because that's, I mean, there's a lot of ways to get solids out, but, you know, you got to do something with it. But right about now, people are probably asking, so, Jim, Shane, what does this have to do with electricity in the oil field? So tell us, <laughs> tell us about your process. Well, what we look at is figure out how to take a low-cost energy cost away to heat. And is that waste heat? You know, in other words, well, you know, you look at it, you look at a frack, how much waste heat we have there. You look at compressors, you look at cogian systems, turbines. There's a lot of wasted heat there. You're already there. You're already generating the electricity. You're already got a compression. How can we take this waste heat and figure out a way to atomize the water into an injection way to create the evaporation at a very low cost, drop these salts out, and purify the water on the backside. Right. So, for example, one thing that springs to mind for me, and I've actually seen designs for this, and I know they use it in places, is you take a gas turbine, right, that you're using to generate electricity, and there you have a lot of waste heat, right? You got that exhaust, right? And so then they'll just, like, spray that you know, produced water through that, and that evaporates the water and the solids drop out. So is that the type of thing we're talking about? You're talking about the same type of deal, but in a more scientific way to do that, to really get into the technology of nozzle technology, atomizing this into very small droplets to allow this heat to absorb that water in a very good way. Now, let's say at the end, the steam is contaminated. We've got bad, you know, benzenes or other things that we have in this steam after we drop out the solids. Well, we can keep this in a closed loop system and recondense that water 
and then run that through conventional type water treatment facilities to take out the other negative things in the system. So can at the end, we'll run that either through different types of membranes, activated charcoals or things like that to get a maybe potable or ag or dischargeable water in the end. And what's the great thing about it is that is now that we can, what, what I call, we can take non, what I call environmental or eco water that has never been introduced into our environmental system or our ecosystem and now can we go out and start growing cotton or hemp or different types of palm trees in the middle of nowhere west texas right yeah now interestingly because you know the regulations are quite different right like out in california as long as you can get it to ag water levels you can use it in a field Correct. right but in Texas, has that changed? Because it used to be the rule that you couldn't use produced water, no matter how much you cleaned it up, in a field. It's changing. You know, we're looking at that and getting with the TCEQ and the Railroad Commission and looking at it and saying, look, can we can keep those solids down and really prove to you on an ongoing basis that the purification of this water is beneficial, then those regulations will change over time. Yeah. And there's a funny point that Shane made earlier, Shane, about the, do they even frack in California? Well, they use frack water. Oh, do they use produce water out there? You know? Yeah, you can use it, but nobody does, right? Because there isn't any out yeah, there, right? Not in my backyard. <laughs> so, no, that's fascinating. So, the electric part of it comes from, because you can use multiple sources. I mean, you could use anything, really. I mean, you could use the heat coming off of diesel engines. Correct, you yeah. could use whatever you want. But in our instance, when we're talking about oil field electrification, you can do that green, right? If they're generating electricity from wind turbines or solar panels or turbines in place, all of that electricity can be used to run this process. That's correct. And then we can even go to the next step. We can actually take waste side of the product and create electricity. So, you know, we have when we talk about gasification of waste from railroad ties and tires and now big, you know, windmill blades that we can, you know, cut up and grind and burn. They're they're very high BTU. We won't have to bury those systems. And we can create a positive product out of those systems and then create a green electricity to run these motors and engines that we have. So what kind of stuff is laying around like in West Texas that you can burn to do that? I mean, that would be green like that. Like they don't have a bunch of wind turbines out there or do they? I don't know. Yes. You know is there, There's a bunch of wind it, turbines. Yeah, if you drive between here and Abilene <clears throat> and Abilene up to the Panhandle, all you see is windmill blades. And those have to be replaced somewhere every 8 to 15 years due to the erosion. Right, yeah, yeah. Just standing there. What do they do with those now? That's the biggest problem. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they tried to bury them, and that's not working. They tried to burn them, and they create more hazards if you try to burn them. So there's technologies out there to grind them and make, you know, as a blend with concrete. We think we can actually cut them up and actually use some type of paralysis or gasification to create energy off of the syngas to run turbines, to run, to create electricity, green electricity out of them. Right. And you were saying a bit earlier about then the end waste, the carbon residue basically from, you know, heating up those, you know, fiberglass turbines, whatever, that that's actually valuable too, right? That is. I mean, carbon, carbon black, you know, nanotubes, activated charcoal, all those type of things are very positive on the tail end. So once we burn that, we can capture that and actually, you know, have a carbon black powder that is actually very marketable. 
Wow, that's fascinating. And I think that that is the key, right? Because we're saying that economics are the key, right? Nobody wants to be green or do any green stuff if it's going to cost them money. And if they can make money off of doing it, then that's a slam dunk, right? right. And the other thing is you don't want to have to rely on the government. You know, nothing against it. The politics changes on year to year. <laughs> and so the government says, well, you know, we'll pay you this year if you go do X. And then you know, the administration changes and says, well, no, we're not going to do that this year. So we can't rely on it. So we have to look at it that anything we get from the government is icing on the cake. Right. You know, we've got to stand on our own two feet and make whatever technology we use in the industry profitable for not only us, but for our clients. So, you know, the last episode we had, we had the, some guys on from Burns and Mac. And, you know, they're seeing this huge increase in electric demand because of all the electrification for all the oil field electrification. And they're talking about 30 something gigawatts of power here in the next 15 or 20 years. What can you all do to actually support that? Because I mean, that's a big leap to get to that point. Cause right now our current grid, according to Ericrod, somewhere around 80, 84 gigawatts. So with this technology, could you guys support that and provide power back to the grid? Yes, we can actually look at battery technology and store some of this during the off-peak hours, store that, and then during peak hours become kind of a peaker plant, put that back in the system. But more important is, for us, you know, waste is everywhere, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it's not, you know, I could go out and build a hub out in the middle of Orla or Pecos in the middle of nowhere, and guess what, as long as I have rail, I can rail tires and railroad ties and, and wings to a central location and create an energy hub where the energy has to be used. The biggest problem that we have is the infrastructure. You know, right. We don't have the power lines to move this much electricity and the time it takes for us to get you know, right-of-ways and permits and actually physical build it, you know, we're, we're going to run out of time. Right. So can I build the power plant where the power is burnt at that location? You know, build it there. You know, then build the hub to bring in the wastewater and bring in the waste at a central location and build these mini plants, what we call microgrid plants, all across the United States. That's interesting because now with the produced water situation being the way it's kind of developed out in the Permian and you have these big companies, you know, hundreds of miles of pipeline to bring things back to a central plant, then in your instance, you just have to set up camp there. Right? right. And then you can be cleaning the water. You could be burning the railroad ties, gasifying the fiberglass from the windmill blades to generate the electricity to deal with that. Right. Correct. You know, in other words, we don't, you know, we don't have to be at a particular location to make this work. You know, we can bring those products to us because guess what? In the end, People are paying us to take this garbage. You know, right, exactly. Yeah. That's so, what I was thinking. So there's like, tipping yeah. fees that we get for the tires and the railroad ties and then, you know, the blades and all of that. And long as we can have a good chain of custody that says, look, we're going to take this product and here's what we're going to do with it. And we're going to get rid of it and create a green product out of it. And then guess what? The electricity grid will come up to us and, you know, people at this and everything says, well, look, can we come and get some of your electricity? We'll build a, a small grid for you and bring it to you and, and just tie in. And we can be the peaker guy in some applications that during the winter blast or during the summer, they need a little extra electricity. Then we can have battery backup storage and say, yeah, we've got some electricity here from the hours of two to eight. We'll pump that into the grid for you. In the meantime, we'll use it ourselves internally from anywhere from Bitcoin. Right. of generation on site to, you know, local consumption to cities or, you know, building your own industrial park. Because now, guess what? If we can generate electricity on site cheaper than some people can get off the grid, does an industrial park make sense for somebody to come in and say, look, we're going to build a Tesla plant or we're mm. going to build that where the electricity is? Right, exactly. And, or and not that Twitter. 
<laughs> <Not Twitter. laughs> but Do they that, use electricity? I don't know. <laughs> I guess but, servers, they uh, would. Yeah, yeah. They got some electricity for sure. But it's interesting because in calling back to that previous episode, too, we're talking with the guys about Burns and Mac. That's one of the things, right, is in the planning phase of oil field electrification, you got to think, like, how far away are we from actual power lines? Can we tie back in now? Or, you know, can we get some kind of contract and have them start building out? But still, it's going to be like five years before they get to you. That's right. Right? And so if you can set up your own little power plant, and so in your business model, then you're getting paid to haul the stuff away, right? Right. You're getting paid to actually clean the water, to right? We'll take the water. You know, so yeah. you know, people. I mean, you know, the oil and gas, the operator is not expecting you to get that free. But if he can give you that water, either at the same cost he's paying today to get rid of it mm-hmm. and doing it in a green environmental way, and then we actually create a product at the tail end that says, "Well, look, if you like to buy the water, and here's even things, we can even create co-ops between us, the oil and gas, you know, guy, the operator, and the surface owner." And then an ag group that says, look, let's come out and create an agriculture co-op that everybody makes a little money, even the surface owner. Because, right. you know, nine-tenths out of the deal is the surface owner is not making a lot of money in, in the oil and gas industry unless he owns the minerals. Right. Well, this way, hey, guess what? We're going to put 10 or 15 acres in cotton, and we're going to take this produced water. We're going to clean it up, hopefully get to discharge qualification. We'll grow some of the cotton, and we'll split this up between all of us. Now, this is a little bit off our topic of oil field electrification, but this is fascinating to me because originally I'm from California. I was born in California. You know, when you're talking about California, Colorado now, too, same thing. Big water problems. Big water. Right? Mm -hmm. Big water problems. I mean, they're just running out, basically. You don't have it. So in this scenario, I mean, you got to have the water to clean up in the first place, right? So that would be coming from Texas. But it would be totally plausible to build pipelines, you know, over the Rockies or to Colorado or no? Well, probably not on the transportation, depending on what the cost of water happens in the future. But you look at, you got Bakersfield. They still got a lot of produced water. That's out true. There. That's you true. Got, yeah. You got the basin in Denver. You still got a lot of water that produced water from the old days. I mean, right. you know, we're not talking about the Niberia and those type of things, but you still got a lot of produced water in certain areas. And so for us to go ahead and take that water in that particular area, we show up. We're not asking you to move to us. We can come to you. Right, exactly, exactly. Set up your plant, do the whole thing in a green way, use the waste, which California's got to love, right? Everybody's got to love that. Colorado, too, man. I was just out there recently. That's a very green state, right? So, well, I think someone told me at one time, I think there's four tires for every American in the United States. It's thrown away every year. <laughs> I would totally believe that, right? At least. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Depending on how many miles you drive a year, right? At least. Yeah, yeah. Now, so this technology sounds really exciting. And then, so what are, I mean, it's in its early stages here for oil and gas, Correct. right? And so are you guys looking for partners to test it out? You're trying to figure out, okay, well, we know this works because we used it in other areas, but this is bigger volume. I mean, how yeah, does that's that why work? We gotta, you got to be able to scale up. You know, it's like we mm-hmm. talked about earlier here. There's technologies out there to go out and do, you know, four or 500 barrels a day. And that's nice, but it really, in the end, it's not helping the industry. Right. We've got to gear up to do tens of thousands of barrels a day in a central location to be in the industry to look at us and say, okay, that's something that will work. Right. You know, for us to go out and I was the frat guy. I was the guy on the other side. 
And if I'm doing 10,000 barrels a day of produced water and you show up and you say, hey, I can do 400, that's nice. <laughs> but it just really didn't help me out in the long run. Right. And so exactly. you've got to be able to scale up. And what we want to do is, is build these in modular systems to come out and say, okay, if we can get, you know, two to 5,000 barrels a day in a modular system. And then we put five or six out of those out there and we can do 10 to 20,000 barrels in a central location. That's great. And then if we want to keep building and build a master plant, you know, maybe we could get to 50 to 75,000 barrels a day at a central location. So the scaling up, having it in a modular fashion where you just keep adding on and having more and more, you know, generation capacity, that's really the key. And that's the biggest challenge, I it guess. Is. It is because you, you got to look at then uh, you look at the waste. You know, if you're making a quarter of a pound of salt per gallon and you're doing 50,000 barrels of water a day, right? you've got a mountain of, of waste there. So can we handle that much waste? What do we do with that? You know, now we've got a salt mine out there, you know, that we're working well, on. And how do we get rid of it? Raise the elevation. And, you know, we've got this concern about raising ocean waters and stuff like that. So that could offset climate change. <laughs> We just use a salt base under everything and build on top of salt mountains. You know, yeah, we kind of yeah. jumped right into it, but the, you know, when I was leading off and talking about, you know, Brandon is, you know, his experience. I mean, let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, how did you know? Tell us about your your. Well, your I was history. a frat guy. My background's a petroleum engineer, and I was in the oil and gas industry for almost thirty-five years, doing some of the original fracks in the Barnett Shell, and designing that. And when that's how I kind of got in the water business, you know, in the beginning. We just pumped from the fire hydrant. We didn't care. You know, it's it, we funny how evolution happens. You know, pit fracking came from the ability that we couldn't get frack tanks from Mitchell Energy. He, he had them all. <laughs> so we said, well, look, but where do we put our water? And this, let's dig a swimming pool. Let's yeah. dig a pit and everything. And we said, gosh, you know, we got so much money invested in this huge pit. You know, can I frack more than one well? Well, how do we get the water from here to over there? Well, how about some irrigation pipes? So we actually used aluminum pipe irrigation. Really? Like yeah. irrigation wow. pipe? Wow, that's crazy. That's how it really got started. We had, you'd run up and down and you see these big trailers and we got stacks of aluminum irrigation pipe <laughs> laying on the ground everywhere. And we were using fresh water then. Right. Right. Yeah. So if it yeah, leaked, you know, yeah, not that no big, big deal. deal right. Yeah. So, you know, that's how, you know, water transfer got, you know, invented. Pit fracking got invented was just out of necessities over time. And then we went into lay flat holes and said, well, gosh, this is easier to deploy. And then, you know, the big pushback is that fracking really grew. We got into stage fracking and they said, God, you're using a lot of fresh water, guys. And, you know, the community didn't like us. You know, you think about it, especially in the Fort Worth area back in those days, you know, you're telling people that you can only water your yard on Tuesdays and Thursdays, <laughs> but I've got lay flat holes here out of the river and just sucking all the water out of the river. <laughs> People, people don't like that, you know? And the same thing, we get out in West Texas, and you got farmers and, you know, other issues that well, are Was that before hard. directional drilling, so they weren't even getting paid royalties either? Uh, yeah, you know, those early stage fracks were vertical, and then, you know, we got into, you know, directional drilling, and, you know, we were only doing a couple of stage fracks, and thought, oh, wow, we're, we're doing great. And then, you know, now we got into, you know, multi-multi-stage fracks, and we're drilling, you know, 10,000 foot out. So the evolution of that just changed, and, you know, we fracked with a little bit of sand, and a lot a bunch of water now we're fracking with a bunch of sand and a bunch of water right exactly yeah so it, flow back's a big deal you know and what do we do with that water and so now you know pretty well most of the industry has got away from freshwater you know right. systems we were using produced water and cleaning that produced water and getting the solids out and getting better fracks and better technologies and our, our original fracks were just pure sand in water and soap i mean that's right. what we really did you know <laughs> And 
frack the wells and just see what kind of wells we make. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Like we were talking about chemistry, you know, your solution versus chemistry too in the oil field, which is fascinating, right? Tell us a little bit about that, about how you can replace like production chemicals. Yeah. And, and So we're doing some testing now with frequencies and electrical devices that we can put on wellheads, especially if they've got, you know, paraffins and asphaltine problems that are causing rod parting and downhole pump problems and pulling, you know, especially if you look at even the old wells, you get into stripper wells. Well, gosh, if I'm making a couple of barrels a day in these stripper wells and I've got to pull it every 60, 90 days, I'm not making any money. Right, exactly. You know, I'm just spinning my wheels and hopefully one day oil will stay above $100 <laughs> a barrel because by the time I make any money, i got to pay it all back. Right. So if we can help extend that life and increase better production, lower the operating cost in the system in a non-chemical way, then that's kind of what we're looking at. And we're seeing some great benefits in creating these frequencies to keeping the paraffins in solutions and preventing the calcium forming on the perforations and the downhole pumps. So again, extending the life of the downhole pump and the pooling, now we create better economics for the operator. Right. And that's fascinating because that's like totally apart from the produced right. water part, right? right? That's a, like a whole different area yeah. where you have applications. So can you use those frequencies like in reclamation of wells and so forth and abandoning fields and, uh, you know, versus... Right. We're actually seeing, we're actually looking at different products there. We found, you know, different organic problems to actually enhance, you know, if we have an oil spill, let's say, how do we enhance the natural bacteria Mm. in the soil itself to break down the hydrocarbons in the oil spill. So we want the oil to recover itself in a greener way and stay away from the harsh chemicals or any runoff that we may get into creeks and waterways. So if we can do that in an organic way, then that's what we do. The other technologies we have is some of the BP oil spills. We have what we call a hydrophobic sponge or whatever. It repels water, but it's an open cell technology that will only absorb a hydrocarbon. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's so impressive. So we have patents on that. We There's some things we're working with the Coast Guards and other oil and gas companies to create spill kits and everything, but it's reusable. The great thing about it is I can absorb it, I can wring it out and put it. So if you have a spill, say, in waterways or something, we can actually create booms that can absorb the oil, we can wring it out and reuse it again and again and again. Wow. That is Speaking impressive. Speaking of patents, just out of curiosity, <laughs> spitball number, you know where I'm going with uh, this. How many patents do you uh, all... Gosh, I mean, we're in the dozens now and think we'll probably be in the hundreds in the next year or so because it's wow. you know, process patterns mm-hmm. of, of taking all these technologies and then it's weird. They have some overlay to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can actually, you know, we're looking at, you know, how do we get rid of bad algaes in ponds and those type of things right. that are toxics? And can we absorb those with the open cell technology? Can the hydroflow itself kill the bacteria? You've got to be careful with some of these algae because they're toxic. And if I kill them, then that's when they let the toxins out into the waterways. Oh, wow. So we, yeah. sometimes if we are ahead of it, we can go ahead and kill those. But if we're not, let's say it's overgrown, well, then we have to figure out how to get the algaes out of the water and then put them in a safe containment. They are high and burnable, so they have great mm-hmm. BTUs because that's where the biodiesel comes from anyway. So can we take these toxic algaes out of the waterways in some areas and then put clean water back in the system? Yeah, no, that's interesting. Back to your frack origins, then that would be great for like ponds and stuff too, oh, yeah. right? I mean, right. because, I mean, that's always the problem, right? How do you keep stuff from growing in there? I mean, you clean up that's the water, your- throw it back in there. Now you gotta, you're getting ready to use it, but you got to keep all the bacteria down, yeah, right? That's your biggest, you know, contributor to H2S, yeah, right? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what, it was funny in the early days, you know, people says, well, gosh, we'll use these oxidizers in this, produce, in this water 
water and put it in the pond. Well, when you oxidize, especially in the Permian Basin, it's very high in iron content. Right. So when we oxidize this water, it wants to precipitate this iron out. Well, that iron is the food source for the bacteria. So <laughs> right. now we pumped all this iron in these pits, <laughs> and now we've got this heat, and now we've got pollen, and we've created an awesome bacteria pond. And so when we stirred up the monk in the mud in the bottom of these ponds, all of our H2OS monitors go kick off. Because, right, yeah. And people say, well, where did the H2S come from? Well, we created it. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> we grew it ourselves. <laughs> so the great thing with the you know hydroflow, hydropath technology is we can kill that bacteria in a non-oxidizing way. That's fascinating in and of itself. In and of itself. Is that particular technology economic? Oh, yeah. You know, We're talking about just circulating through electronic frequency all the time. Wow. And so what we do is we would take the water from one side of the pit and, and pump it through the hydroflow technology and inject it on the other side and create like the old drilling horseshoe where, where the water would migrate right. through it. And we just keep it clean all the time. Wow. And that's economic. That, I mean, yeah, very this, economic wow, to do that. You know, because you think about it, how much oxidizing from either a chlorine dioxide, which is very expensive and very dangerous to have on site, to other types of chlorinations and things we have on right. site. You've got to use a lot of that for the amount of water we use. Wow. You guys have a lot of technology that touches on our business. That's for sure. It does. And the thing, looking at it a way that we can do this very, of course, always economical, but in a way that it's green and it benefits all parties that are involved from not only the community, but the operator themselves. Yeah, because all those other things you're talking about with using chemicals on site and whatnot, I mean... That's always a hazard to personnel, right? And everybody in the HR world is like, yeah, watch out, man. You take one whiff of that bottle, you're dead. Yeah. Don't even don't even think about it. But your technology, there's none of that risk. That's right. We, we try to look at it from a safety point of view to look at it and say, look, can we do this right? You know, mm-hmm. We have to look at it. If we can't do it right, then we move on and don't look at those type of technologies. Right. That's fascinating. We could talk hours. I'm <laughs> telling you, I've been in the room with him, and you know, it's awesome to hear him talk because he's obviously – knows his stuff here's maybe a loaded question right uh, and you came up with this tagline yesterday uh, i was in a meeting with you <laughs> how far away or how long is it going to take for us to go from frack to tap when it comes to using produced water my personally i don't think it's that far away i mean it's going to take a little time and us to figure out it's really not the water itself that's going to create the biggest problem it's what we get out of the water what do we do with it is right. probably the biggest problem for us to take and process water once we get these salts out of the water then the process side of it we can go back to conventional type of cleaning water we can go back to ro we can go back to different type of filtration in the system but this way we can do it right and have a positive on both sides of the fence is what i look at mm-hmm. you know if I create good water, but I've created so much contamination on the other yeah, side. Yeah, that's not a good And the deal. cost no. for me to get rid of that waste outweighs mm. to getting the fresh water. It doesn't work for everybody. Right, exactly. But I think we can get there. I mean, the biggest problem is the public, you know, it took us 20 years to get from toilet to tap where people would actually <laughs> understand that. And right. we do that today. <laughs> right. In the next five to ten years, can we get from a produced water scenario to get to drinking water? I think there's possibilities there. That would be amazing. That would be huge. Taking care of a lot of problems all at the same time simultaneously. I was thinking when you're talking about all the salt byproduct, you mentioned earlier that you could use that salt to make rebar. Yeah, there's certain technologies and polymers that we could actually bind, and we can bind the salts and encapsulate that salt into certain products from concrete to different type of extrusion. Remember, once we bind it and it can't escape through getting rained on and right. we've and captured that systems, then the deal is what can we do with the polymer? Can we extrude that into different types of 
wood products, you know, from a four by four to plyboard mm. to rebar to make concrete, you know, pillars, you know, we've done some testing and we're seeing that the concrete is maybe two to three times stronger than natural concrete. Stronger? And, yeah, stronger because of the binding effects of the salt and, and so we put wings in it and grind that up. Now we've got a really good lighter, but more, a stronger piece of a concrete that we would normally have yeah would, would that make the rebar stronger too if you're using that as it, we could you know we're seeing some tests the old there was an old what they call russian technology that took basalt type systems and and different products and mixing it with polymers and making a very strong rebar or even rebar fibers or anything you can do that to do that but again it all based on economics and how right. the cost and so the great thing is as everything increases in prices, <laughs> it makes the challenge for us to go out and chase these technologies better. Right. Because, you know, if, you know, it's costing me 50 cents a barrel to get rid of the water, that's hard to go out in the capital industry to say, I'm going to make a profit at that. Right. But as diesel increase and it's time to get this water and moving it from point A to point B, you know, wages and all that increases, then the cost for me to get rid of that water increases. Well, now if I'm paying two to five dollars a barrel to get dispose of this water now there's enough money there to allow companies like us to go chase technologies that make sense and even at two dollars a barrel you, you can be making money yeah i think we're close based on volume you know again you know if we can get there and get lots of volumes then our cost drives down right exactly well shane any other questions before we wrap up oh i could sit here for <laughs> for, for hours <laughs> having a conversation with Brent, man. It's, it's I know this could be one of our longer episodes right here. Probably, I mean, hey, it's all great guests with scratch, exciting technology. We scratch the surface. Yeah, I it, mean, it is. There's a lot of stuff out there. We're not the only companies doing There's great technologies out there that, you know, need someone to look at. You know, a lot of this stuff, you know, people understand it. It comes out of people's garages. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there may not even be in our industry. And they said, you know, We'll try this. And then, you know, think about, you know, the Dales and the Bill Gates. You know, that's how a lot of that stuff gets Absolutely, started. yeah. Well, the same thing. You know, you got these guys in the field. Some of them are, are probably roughnecks or non-technical guys, and they found a widget. And, you know, they just need somebody to look at it. You know, right. that's what we do. We go across the nation looking at different widgets and says, look, can we make that fit an industrial and in a green way and profitable for our company? And then we'll take those and either if they're not patented, we will help them get those patents and work our way through that. And then the other deal is how do we introduce that into the industry that works for everybody? Right. That's interesting. So you don't just buy them out. You help them get the patents and you cut them in on the deal, the whole thing, right? We'll bring them in. We'll create a separate entity for them and bring them on and promote them if it really works. Wow. So that's what we want to do. Yeah, that's a great way to foster people doing that, right? Because if, you know, some people want a big payday, hey, pay me millions, millions of dollars for my technology. But the real money is in, hey, if this thing works and becomes adopted, then I retire, right? I mean, that's... (laughs) That's the basic well, deal. Well, we talk about creating generational wealth for these people. Exactly. You know, it's hard for people sometimes to do it themselves, and they need companies like us to come along and say, look, you know, man, it's great. You have great ideas. You have great. Maybe we need a little extra technology, and we'll bring the other technology to the table. To kind oh, of, that's right. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you already have some existing things right. that may work together with right. that to make it even more but efficient. Even that, let's say they need, you know, some science, some testing and verification of their technology. That's something we can bring the table to. Wow. That's impressive, man. We really look forward to hearing more 
from that. And, you know, I work for the magazine World Oil. You need to write some articles for us, <laughs> right, on all of that stuff. I mean, it could be on anything from, you know, the dealing with produced water to getting rid of chemicals in the oil field. All of those are fascinating to our readers. And not only fascinating because it's green technology, but fascinating because it's economical, yeah. Yeah. right? You, you I might mean, have to create a new publication for them, <laughs> just for them, you know, well, honestly. You're I mean, talking I mean, about water savings. That's the other big thing we're on is we get into yeah. cooling towers on power plants and processing plants. They use a lot of water. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And chemicals and scaling problems and algae problems is a big deal. So we can bring certain technologies to the table to help them decrease their footprint and their water consumption and reduce their chemical footprint. Right. And just before we go, just you don't even have to answer this. might be a sensitive question, but what industries do you have the biggest foothold in right now? Right now it is the cooling tire industry. I mean, really? across the board. That's kind of our low-hanging fruit. You know, we have technologies, a non-chemical way to help reduce the water consumption. I'll, I'll be out there as we've been into power plants and other big plants that, you know, we're talking about reducing the water consumptions in the hundreds of millions of gallons a year savings. Wow. That's a big deal when you talk about water consumption in the environment and the community that you can tell somebody says, look, you know, we've cut our water consumption in this area for you by hundreds of millions of gallons. Yeah. I think I was very surprised at a couple of the articles and the paragraphs that I read earlier is just that the quickness of the ROI. Yeah. And the fact that they don't have to stop operation for them to implement their solution into their operations and then they have ROI, you know, within the first year. Yeah. And then that's that continue, insane. And then that continues on with water savings, you know, forever. Yeah. forever. And you know, this has been a big thing. I mean, I was reading about this 10 years ago, but mm-hmm. water's not going to be getting cheaper. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Right now, just the state of Texas, if you look at the numbers, it's increasing somewhere between six to 8% a year is just a wow. water. Six to 8%. Yeah. Well, you look at people don't think about the water that you buy, but you know, you have to throw it away. And there's right. a cost for throwing it away. So, you know, you look at Austin. I think Austin's around $16 per thousand gallons, what we call round trip. I think Atlanta is upwards of $30 per thousand to get rid of it and yeah. buy it. So to process water in cooling systems across, and we're talking about high-rise buildings. You're talking about any type of energy consumption, power plants, refineries. All of them need chilled water for their process. And for them to buy it, and then use it and then throw it away, that's a big number for them. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. No, okay, we will talk later because there's a lot of places where you could be contributing some content I, to the magazine. I was we ought to start a coffee company and just use produced water. <laughs> that to, would be awesome. You know, and then go after Starbucks. And, you know, I don't know what you call it, you know. Fracta tap or fracta black or, you know, whatever. Fracta black. I like that one. That's a good one. That's a good one. But no, that's awesome. Well, Rent, thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Shane, thank yeah, you. You know, and Joliet again for sponsoring this. This has been fantastic. I mean, every yeah. episode, just incredible yeah, technology incredible. again yeah. and again and again. And, you know, it's not, should... not bad. You guys benefit from all this oil field electrification <laughs> hey, you stuff, know, right? I'll tell you where we really benefit is getting to know guys like Brent and just and just getting to know people that are really behind the scenes making the magic happen, making the next iteration of refinement in the oil field. And we're just proud to be part of it. And, you know, with on that note, I think we ought to say, even though this might come out a little bit later, Merry Christmas to everybody. And oh, yeah. Happy Merry New Christmas. Year. Yeah. yeah. This, this won't be out until later. But, yeah, no. I hope everybody, I mean, at least everybody I know in the oil fields have had a happy year. Yeah. It's been, yeah so far, so good. 
been a good year, you know, coming out of COVID and doing all this stuff. And really just, I mean, the technological advances is one of the things that I love about our industry is we're always advancing. But, you know, that whole COVID hiatus, people were still developing stuff, right? I mean, they might not have commercialized it because, hey, well, nothing was going on, right? But now we're seeing it full force. and. Yeah. You guys are just, wow. I mean, our government might start to dislike Brent even as much as Elon Musk. He keeps going to the pace he's going. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks right. for Appreciate being on the show. And yeah, definitely. We'll talk later. All right. Thank All right. You. Take care. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening to today's guest. If you have any questions related to today's episode, please email us at oetpodcast at worldoil.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Joliet Electric Motor that's been providing an engineered custom motor solutions for the oil field for over 30 years. If you have any questions related to your motor needs, please email me at shaneh at joliettelectricmotors.com. Electric Motors.com.